0: So rather than ask me why I'm angry, what I want to know is, do you understand why I'm angry? Do you feel the pain that we go through on any level as a human being when I explain how emotionally traumatic it is for me as a person?
1: From Soho Media Club, this is Naked Stories. A series taking you into the inner world of the media industry where prejudice and glass ceilings are laid bare. Stories that are hard to tell out in the open, but have the power to change the future. Produced by PRL Studio, I'm Roses Okipo. Welcome to Episode 9, Full Stop. There is a value in taking a stand, whether or not anybody may be noticing it, and whether or not it's a risky thing to do. And if even those who are in danger can raise their lonely voices, isn't it more that is required of all of us? Teresa Hines. Today I met Redwood, an experienced creative director and TV exec. He's joined us as our guest today to share his stories of systemic racism that has been perpetuated in the fabric of British media culture for generations. Be mindful that one black person cannot speak for all black people. Though because of the colour of their skin, they share similar experiences of racism. Sharp, talented and super smart, Redwood's built a solid reputation for himself in the industry. But despite the anonymity of this podcast, he's wary about sharing his experiences as he knows that talking could mean putting a lot on the line in terms of his career. So in spite of the risks, why is he ready to speak out now?
0: If you confront things, then there's no guarantee that they'll change. But what is guaranteed is that if you don't confront them, then nothing changes. Like the mere action of challenging a system. So you're not even saying tear down the whole system, but just challenging the way in which the system operates. The mere act of that generates such a visceral reaction that you can be made to feel like it's an existential threat which is why, like, when John Boyega gets up and speaks, as he's speaking, he says, I'm afraid my career is done. When David Olesuga gets up and does the MacTaggart, he says exactly the same thing. Like, every time I'm asked to do a diversity thing at the moment and I'm speaking, and I'm speaking a more clear version of my truth, like, there is a voice in my head at the back of my head going, are you going to pay for this at some point? I'm choosing not to be bothered about it because if you don't want to hire me or you don't want to give me an opportunity... Now, after all the different things that I've done, because I'm being really honest about my struggle, then I'm either in the entirely the wrong industry or you're not the employer for me. I guess that's where I'm at right now.
1: 2020 will go down in history as the year that broke the world. Every country was forced to bow down to coronavirus, which created a clear view of the knee-necking monstrous and inhumane acts of injustice against George Floyd, which has led to black squares and hashtags everywhere. Redwood tells me from his perspective what it means to be a black man in the UK.
0: When people talk about metaphorical knee on your neck, that is how, like, that's how life feels as a black man in this country, trying to make their way, like, just trying to go to work. Not even like when I'm at work, just trying to go to work can be an ordeal. But it's not really, but you know, and an ordeal sounds like quite a dramatic word, but you don't really use that word because you don't really talk about it. You just accept that someone might grab their purse. You accept that if it's a particular kind of time of day, and people have been drinking, then they feel like they can say whatever they like to you. Or if you're in the center of town and there's tourists around, that they feel that they can ask you where they can score drugs. Or that, you know, a police can stop you at any point or anything when you're not even doing anything. You know, this is the life that we lead. Um, and I think the moment, what this moment in time is doing, I think is pulling back the curtain on what people's real lived experience is. If that makes it uncomfortable for you to hear, then you probably need to ask yourself why. Because if it's uncomfortable for you to hear, just think how uncomfortable it is for us to bear.
1: When I asked Redwood to describe how it feels to be a black man in the entertainment industry, he quotes Moonlight actor Maharshala Ali.
0: It was an interview that Jay-Z did. It was around, he was promoting an album, I think. And he just basically got people to talk about, like black people in the industry, in the entertainment industry, just to talk about their experiences. And Maharshala just said it perfectly for me. He thinks about life in the entertainment industry as a black person versus a white person as like playing football. And you've got defense and you've got offense. He says, white people can play offense without any worries about what's gonna happen. I play defense. If I'm gonna move one step forward, I'm gonna move two steps back first, check out the terrain, and then take one careful step forward. Then I'm gonna move back again, couple steps, check the terrain, and move one step forward. My white peers, they just walk straight through. They walk clear headed.
1: Like in all my interviews, we have to look into the childhood of the interviewee to understand what experiences molded them into the people they are today. Redwood grew up in a traditional Jamaican household in a predominantly white area where he was one of the few black boys at primary and secondary school. And boy, was he made to feel different.
0: We were living in predominantly white areas, they were white working class areas and it was a particular moment in time where people weren't afraid to, to share how they really felt about black people. Using lots of different words, but all, I guess, initially with the same intent to make you feel quite different. So no, I didn't really grow up in a particularly diverse area.
1: For a lot of non-black people, The death of George Floyd and the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement was a wake-up call. Though the same alarm has been ringing since 1619, but the world kept hitting the snooze button. I wanted to know, when was Redwood's wake-up call that he was a black person living in a white society?
0: I must have been five or six, and I was walking to school, and some kids shouted at me that I was Cambodian. Now, I'm five or six, and for the longest time, I assumed Cambodia was in Africa because, like, that was that's the only thing that I could have like put two and two together. And when I realised where it actually was, when I was older, I was like, oh, okay, so I was just different. So they needed to say something to make me feel different. By seven, I was a hundred percent certain that uh, I was black and that people didn't necessarily like that fact.
1: So, it was as early as age five that it was etched into his soul by others, not only that he was different because of the colour of his skin, but his kind of difference was unwelcomed. Racial abuse didn't just start and stop in the classroom. This was flung at him in the community, in the streets, on the bus. Racism is a mindset, a conscious and sometimes unconscious behaviour. It was all around him, constantly.
0: At school there was a guy who would kick me in the shins underneath my desk, and we were sat opposite each other, and would call me Black Sea next Tuesday, and he was seven. I would walk into the local newsagent, and I'm not sure that he ever called me by my name. Pretty sure he always called me Sambo. Pretty sure. Sambo, which was just another derogatory black term. I don't even know how many times I got called like a nigger or a coon, just walking down the street. And that wasn't necessarily from people that walked past you, sometimes it was. Sometimes it was coming out of um, people driving past, or you might be on a bus, and someone might say, or it could be anywhere. What I didn't know was when it was gonna happen. What I did know for certain was that it was definitely going to happen at some point every week for at least 10 years.
1: A traditional black family does not talk about emotions. And this was true in Redwood's Jamaican household. You just have to carry on and keep it pushing. However, his family gave him the talk.
0: It was one talk and it was like, this is the environment you're in. So what you don't do is you don't speak Patua outside of the outside of the house. You speak the Queen's English at all times. You have to be like twice as good as everybody else to get half as much, like focus on your education, focus on behaving, don't loiter, don't hang around, keep with a good circle of people.
1: Life isn't always about holding good cards, but playing a poor hand well. Redwood outwitted those who tried to pull him down. He pretty quickly learnt to turn negative situations to his advantage.
0: Like if you're expecting an attack of some kind, then naturally you're just more anxious. You're super careful about what you say, what you do, how you do it. You de-escalate stuff that's not even there. So you kind of make yourself as like accessible, amenable, friendly. And I guess the thing that helped was that I was a smart kid. I could help people in that way. I lived on a road where, at the time, someone who was considered one of the prettiest girls in the school was also on that road. So I used to walk to school with her. So then all the guys would say to me, like, can you pass a message to her? So then, like, that was an ad. Like, so then... You know, you just, you, I, would just, I just found ways to be more useful than hateful.
1: They say tough situations build strong people.
0: But I guess conversely, it meant that I've got quite used to speaking to people that aren't like me and finding a way to make people that really don't like me at least tolerate my presence, which, given what we're talking about and the industry that we're in, has been an unexpected benefit.
1: Tolerate my presence. Let those words sink in for a minute how crushing a fountain of wisdom and knowledge I'm not surprised to discover that Redwood went to Cambridge University
0: from a relatively early age like I was always in like the top 10 or top five like at school like I was never number one really but I was always like in that top set and so that meant that you're always I was always going to take TCCs I was always going to do a levels and I was always going to go to university because I was just in that set of people that that was their direction of travel. I, w- I was spotted, basically, by a random teacher who thought that based on something that I'd done that I had the, the capability to go there. So I wasn't someone that was like earmarked by my school or anything like that. It was just one teacher. And she had a relationship with a particular college. And so I think she arranged for an open day. And I think, yeah, she I think she arranged for the open day so I could get a feel of what it was like. And then she... So, sort of taught me through the process of filling out the form and the statement.
1: But as a black person, he was the unconventional applicant. So of course, even the application process had a few hurdles. Redwood's mum often reminds him of what happened.
0: Her recollection is that the school dragged their heels and that they thought that I was sort of, sort of shooting for the stars and there wasn't really any point in me applying. And it was getting closer and closer to the deadline to apply. And I think my mum just asked me whether I'd submitted my thing in yet, and I said, no, no, the school said not to worry about it, or something, I can't remember, something like that. So then she went up to the school, and I think my dad went up to the school, and off the back of that, my application was submitted.
1: Redwood's love for writing, politics and society led him to pursue a career in journalism. He started off working for a black publication where it was clear that he needed to reroute his career in order to progress what became apparent was
0: whenever there was a major national black story, just like with George Floyd, everyone knew your number. Like, like everyone, everyone. Guardian would call. BBC would call. Like, everyone would call you. And so, like, in some ways that was quite exciting because you're like, there's all of this interest. But then you're just like, so you only think that we are of interest if it's to do with this. This is the only way in which we are seen. And I was like, Oh, so does that mean that's the only way in which I'm sick? And like, I don't want to be just talking about my own lived experiences the whole time. I have other things I want to do and talk about and feel. So it did therefore make me realise that in order to do that, I would need to break out of black media and go into white wider media industry.
1: You might have heard the saying that minorities have to work twice as hard to achieve half as much. Well, the saying is true. Redwood knew it and lived it. He put pressure on himself to go beyond the Cambridge credit and get another qualification.
0: I need to be as qualified as possible just to be able to have a chance of an opportunity. So therefore I have to, even though I've been working as a journalist had my own front page exclusive, Even though I'd had that, I still felt compelled to get a proper journalistic qualification. It had to be like from one of the best journalistic colleges in the country. My approach was as binary as this. If I do not get into that college, then I do not deserve to be a journalist. And that was the decision I'd made to myself. I was like, if I don't get in, I'm going to go back and try and be an academic or something. Just do something different. But luckily I got in. That was basically my gateway into mainstream media.
1: He got the qualification, and as part of that course, there was an opportunity to choose a work placement. A passion for fashion, there was no hesitation in selecting GQ magazine as his top choice for work experience. So off went his CV.
0: Great journalistic college, tick. Cambridge University, tick. Great A-levels,
1: tick. He got the gig, of course.
0: Like I can remember like walking down the street and walking towards Condé Nast thinking... I'm going into the Condé Nast building. This is like, this is exciting, right?
1: On the merit of his hard work shown on his resume and a long-time appreciation for the company, he knew this was where he was meant to be.
0: There's no, like, there's no reason for them to think that anyone other than the type of person that would normally walk through the door would walk through the door.
1: Redwood walked confidently through the doors and into the lift.
0: I got out of the lift, I went to shake the guy's hand. And so what happened was... His face didn't change, right? But his pupils, his pupils widened. Because basically everything else didn't move, but I watched his pupils change. And like, it was like a startled, like a startled look in his pupils. That was the first time I ever walked in somewhere and realised that they weren't expecting a black person.
1: Nothing on his CV had given them any indication of his ethnicity. But why would this even be an issue?
0: I sat there and said, okay, you sit there. So I sat there and they just talked amongst themselves. He didn't offer me anything to do. And by this point, I've been working as a news reporter for a year. I'm now a freelance journalist as well as being in college. I have my own column. I'm all right. So, like, I'm not, like, wet behind the ears. There's something that you can give me to do. Nothing. Nope. Just literally, I was just sitting there, like, trying to think about ways to pass my time. And then I heard one of them boasting about getting this great gig to write about a pop star for an American publication. And then about an hour or two later, he turns around to me and says, oh, could you um, do some research for me um, and photocopy everything we've got here on this particular pop star? So he was basically outsourcing his freelance work to me.
1: You what, mate? Not only is this fucking rude, it's out of order. Talk about having your dreams crushed right in front of you, stuck in an internal mental rut, The scenario made Redwood feel deflated and confused.
0: I felt down and a little depressed um, and quite sad almost immediately. And then I I felt both anxious and confused because I knew that they didn't really want me there but I was confused as to how I could stay and make it okay and I didn't want to leave because I knew that would reflect badly on me. So even while I'm being made to feel bad, I'm trying to make find a way to make them feel better so I don't look worse. It's up there in one of the top two, three most soul-destroying moments I've ever had in the industry. I left and I never went back.
1: Redwood has been part of a number of diversity schemes in TV and I wanted to know if they were worth the hype. Had they helped him with his career progression?
0: The diversity schemes I went on were good in so much as it's good to meet a new network of people within the industry that are going through a similar thing to you. You do get new skills that you don't necessarily have already. Did they get me anywhere? Not directly, no. I think what they do is they create an opportunity to widen your network and then that network can help you get new stuff. The issue with diversity schemes is that it assumes a couple of things it assumes that you don't already know what it is that you're doing and it assumes that a little bit of intervention is enough a moment in time on a scheme if it's not backed up by something that's consistent and is supportive at every step of your career then the chances of it petering out are quite high and there was definitely one that I went on that I was incredibly reluctant to go on because I just didn't want the handout. And I wanted to just be valued for what it is that I knew I was capable of doing. And over the course of that year, I just hit a ceiling. And I was like, cool, let me just try this course to see whether it helps unlock something. And it kind of did. That was, I think that was the frustrating thing for me and is the frustrating thing for me about some of those schemes. The assumption is that you need the help don't need the help. I just need the opportunity to be considered in exactly the same breadth as my peers that just happen to have a different colour of skin to me. That's
1: it. Redwood thinks these schemes are bland and can do with a little seasoning.
0: If anything, the best schemes would be for those that are in power and for their progress to be judged by those that don't benefit from that power. Like invert the power dynamic and then, and then see how that feels. And maybe that would give people a different perspective on things.
1: Unfortunately, there will be people listening to this podcast who still don't get it, who are probably thinking, but it's not always about race. I wanted you guys to really understand why 99% of the time it is about race. I asked Redwood to describe what it's like walking into a media company in the UK.
0: Most of the time, I'm the only black person in the room.
1: Though that's not the first thing that comes to mind it's still a fact. He's usually the only black person. Darker side of these companies that use people of color as racialized props that needs light shining on it. Let me break it down. A lot of these companies want to look like champions of diversity. So they tokenize black and brown people by using them in ways that give off the impression of social inclusion and diversity. Tokenism is simply covert racism.
0: Like, I was always on the cover of brochures. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I was like, you're making it look like there's loads of me here. It's just me. It's just me. But you put me on the cover, so everyone is like, ooh, black lead. We're not. Like, I'm passing through. It's just me, then there'll be somebody else. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I found... And right, the best one, the one that made me laugh the most was... I went to um, a factual conference. The industry is white, okay? But this was the whitest thing I'd ever been to, like ever. Volume of white people ratio to me, I was just like, I couldn't see any color at all, right? And there was one other black person there. And then he, <laughs> he said to me, yeah, you've just doubled the quota. It was just me last year. I was like, that is bad, right? And then afterwards, when you looked at the website, I swear to God there was a picture of me on the website. I was like, that is rude. There was two of us.
1: No one wants to be voiceless in a position that only glorifies their inclusion. People want opportunities that actually empower them and not turn them into figurines.
0: It's not like you walk into everywhere thinking, I'm the only black person. That's not what happens. What happens is is that sometimes you walk into a room and you're made to feel like the only black person. It's how people look at you, how people react. I'll give you an example. Here we go. Board meeting for an organisation. And it's my first board meeting. And I think I got the time wrong. So I think I was early, which didn't help, right? Because they were setting up. (laughs) And so I walk in and literally the first thing they said to me was, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm here for the board meeting. And they said, are you sure? (laughs) I was like, I think so. I mean, I think I've been invited to this board meeting thing. Like it was an advisory committee of some kind. And they were like, oh, okay, well, we're just setting up. So if you are meant to be here, then, you know, it starts out half an hour, 40 minutes. Now, what they didn't know was that the person that was chairing that advisory committee was the person that had invited me. She did something very conscious, because she's just that way inclined, where she said something very early on that afforded me status. Like, she singled me out very early on in the meeting and afforded me status. And I could see that the two or three people who had just misjudged me were like a bit like, "Mm." And like that just happens. I don't walk into any particular scenario expecting racism. I'm just not surprised when I see it.
1: What does it feel like to be the odd one out at work? You're just riddled, well, from from my
0: perspective, you're just constantly riddled with anxiety and insecurity. We have an advantage as black people. We are used to observing them. They are not used to observing us and looking at us because they don't always have to interact with us. Do you know what I mean? I know when I walk into a room and someone wasn't expecting to see a black person and they don't have to say anything and they're trying really hard to hide it and I still know. It's just really tiring, but because what you have to then do is go, Oh, okay. So I need to give you a reason to realize that we are equals. So I'm going to say something in a particular way. I'm going to use a particular word. I'm going to use a particular phrase. I'm going to make a particular reference. I'm going to see where you've worked and I'm going to know someone where you've worked. And I'm going to know that the way that I know that person is going to be a way for you to realize that we are equals. And it's happened like it's happened so many times.
1: Redwood describes a typical situation which he has experienced so many times. He has honed the tactic.
0: If I meet someone, and this has happened many times, I meet someone and they're just a little bit dismissive. Right? We've just been introduced. There's no need to be dismissive, but you're just dismissive. I'm like, fine. I'm like, cool. This is the game we're playing today. I then start talking to them, ask some questions. It helps having been a journalist because you probe and you find out what makes them tick and what, what they're into. So then, you find, then I'm like, OK, cool. And then I'll go, oh, you know so-and-so. And they go, yeah. They go, oh, okay. I was at uni with that person. And as soon as I say that, I know that they know what uni they went to. So I know, like, and I watch it in their head, they go, okay, well, that person went to Cambridge. And if you're at uni with them, that meant you must have been to Cambridge, which means you must be worth talking to. And then the conversation changes. Every time. And I don't I don't even need to say I went to Cambridge University, but I've used that tactic. I have lost count of how many times. And it works
1: If you want to master something, you have to study it. And that's exactly what Redwood has done.
0: There are very few execs that I don't know like what companies they've worked at, what shows they've made, what awards they've won. I'm very good at finding something that we could have in common, but that also puts us at the same level. So I can pitch it right. If I know that you've worked at the BBC... Right. And I know that you're at the BBC at a particular time. I know exactly which names to say at the BBC that I work with that will make you realise that you should have known who I was in the first place. So I've been mentored by people like Danny Cohen, who used to run BBC Vision, controller BBC One, Controller BBC Three. I've been mentored by Sophie Turner Lang, who ran Hughes Face the Sky, and then ran Endemol Molshya. There's quite a few people that have operated within their orbit, but they're pretty high up there in the industry. Like, when you can mention people like that in casual conversation, uh, and you have a relationship with those people, people suddenly think, oh, okay, well, you've done, oh, okay, well, that means that you must be worth this or that. And it's not like I try and use their names in vain. It's not that. It's more a case of, I'm going to do this game again, where you don't really know who I am, and you don't really know what to make of me.
1: Having to play a predictable, pathetic game is long and must be so damn draining.
0: Uh, it's exhausting, it's irritating, it's frustrating, it's disheartening. But it's insulting because you think that like you go back like go back to what your parents said. If you get a really good education, if you work twice as hard as everybody else, you, you've got a good chance. I got a bunch of A levels. I went to one of the best universities in the country. I shouldn't really be feeling like I'm fighting to prove myself decades later. Like, like I shouldn't. Like, yeah, maybe if I hadn't maybe fulfilled my potential, but like, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done some good stuff. I've done some stuff that people have never done before. So why is it that there's a constant need for me to prove my worth to you and not the other way around? The amount of times I've had people come up to me and gone, we haven't met, I don't know you. And what that really means is, I therefore don't know what you're worth.
1: Redwood remembers a specific experience during a teen briefing.
0: I'm in the office and I'm being told that the editorial strategy for what it is that we're doing is changing. Um, and we're going to make things like a little bit more mainstream, a little bit more populist. And I'm given the impression that a lot of the stuff that I'd been doing, which was a little bit more diverse, a little bit edgier, wasn't really doing very well. And so that was part of the reason why we were, weren't doing well. This is going to be the new strategy. And I was like, oh, that's a shame because, you know, I was enjoying doing that stuff and I, I thought it was doing quite well. It had garnered quite a lot of press.
1: Naturally, Redwood was curious, so he asked a colleague for some audience stats.
0: Could you just do me a favour and just show me what the stats were for the stuff that I was doing? And so she did. And so I looked at the stats. And what the stats showed me was some of my shows hadn't done as well as I thought, but a lot of my shows had done quite well. And a lot of my shows had done just as well as quote-unquote populist mainstream shows. So they had the same numbers, almost, in some cases. And so the decision to promote a title over another title, therefore, wasn't based on numbers purely. It was based on a narrative. And maybe that narrative was more in line with the advertiser they wanted to get, I don't know. But what I did know was, some of my stuff did quite pretty well. And I was made to feel like some of my stuff didn't do well at all my boss just started getting really funny with me. Just like, it was just all of a sudden, like overnight was like really quiet, a bit cold. And I was just like, what is going on? And like, it was really obvious. Like they just didn't, they just didn't want to engage with me at all.
1: Unsure of what to do next, Redwood called an old boss who advised him to call a meeting to confront what was going on.
0: And so I did that. And basically what had transpired was they'd found out that I'd done the research and thought that I was going to use that research to hurt them in some way, in some political way. And I was like, no, I I just wanted to... I just wanted to know for my own benefit because I, I just didn't have the information. And they were really incredibly cynical about my motives. I wasn't trying to be clever, but in just asking a particular question, I'd revealed something, and they didn't like that.
1: What thoughts were going through Redwood's head?
0: Uh, I thought, I'm fucked. I thought, you know, it is hard enough to get into commissioning. Yeah, I'm done. Pretty soon, I'm done. It's going to be a long road back, and even then it's not going to quite be the same. And it was a long road back.
1: Is it ignorance? Or is it deep-rooted racism?
0: Depends on the person, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Um, Or or sometimes it could be ignorance born of racism, do you know what I mean? So um, sometimes it's ignorance, sometimes it's insecurity. Like, white fragility is real. And if you feel under threat, then you find a way to attack. And because it's the UK, the mode of attack is smooth and nuanced. It's subtle. Like a lot of the racism within the media industry is subtle. Because it intersects with class, that's the particularly frustrating thing I think for some people, which is that class is a means to exclude people. But if all the people from that class are also white, then it's also exclusion on the basis of race.
1: There is a palatable preset mold that Redwood takes on at work. What helps him get through?
0: Up until this podcast, my mantra was like diplomacy, deference and diligence. That's how you do it. If you are super diplomatic and you find a way to make everyone feel okay and you never let anyone, particularly anyone that is the same level as you or slightly above you, if you don't make any of those people feel like they're stupid or that they don't know something and if you work super hard You might just be able to survive in the industry. That's what I would say. And I would say doing that all the time is exhausting.
1: This is not living. This is surviving. With invisible but very real bars and barriers, Redwood has been trying to continuously abide by the unwritten rules of society which don't allow you to be your true self, which can have an exhausting effect.
0: At some point last year... I just started to start using the phrase assimilation fatigue. Like it is tiring having to make other people feel okay. Just in case you say something that might make them look silly. Or just in case you do something that might be better than them. Or just in case a, like a spotlight of excellence falls on you instead of them. Or just in case you might be perceived as anything other than a good employee. I've watched, like, I've watched the language that non-Black employees feel freely to use, how they've dressed, and I've known that I just couldn't do it. I've known that if I had dressed more casually, I would have been judged in a particular way. If I had been loud, like other people I see, I would be judged in another way. If I swore in the way that they did, I would be judged in a different way. Every now and again, I forget. I just forget. And I just say something that feels really obvious to me. Like, I watch the atmosphere in the room change a little bit. I've outshone the wrong person. And I can also see it in their face. In my head, I'm immediately thinking, how am I going to pay for that?
1: Has Redwood ever really felt like he can be himself?
0: There have been moments when I've been able to be myself. And those movements have been in either overwhelmingly Black environments within the media industry or overwhelmingly diverse organisations. That's it. If it's not those spaces, you don't feel like you can be yourself. Because part of trying to succeed within the industry is just making sure that you're succeeding. And part of that success is about being part of and a valued member of that community. It's shared beliefs, it's shared interests, it's shared passions. Within the industry, there's quite a narrow subset of values, I would argue, that it's really easy to stick out of that.
1: Some might argue, that at work, it's normal to put up a different persona, regardless of your colour.
0: Okay, so it's not about whether you use the Queen's English or not. I mean, there is a little bit of that. There is definitely a snobbery around language in the media industry. If you don't properly enunciate, if you don't use certain words naturally, people do judge you. There is a class bias, especially when it comes to diction and language. It's more about cultural references. So when you grow up, Everything that you're informed by is the environment within your home and the environment outside. I guess the difference is, is that for large swathes of the industry, arguably their life inside their homes is not that different from their lives when they would walk out on the street every day of their life. You're white and middle class when you, when you're in your house. And when you leave the house, you are white and middle class. You can be black and middle class at home. When you leave your house, you're black. And then depending on who chats to you, they will decide what it is that you're worth. And that's the difference. And that's how you're made to feel. Like, it is reductive. It is. But that is the reality. You are able to feel reduced to just the colour of your skin in a heartbeat at any moment. In a way that white people don't have. It's not even something that they have to think about.
1: Isn't it odd? We can only see our outsides when nearly everything happens on the inside. What are the career prospects like for a black person in the media industry?
0: Throughout my career, like at key stages, someone very senior has gone, this guy's got something, let's give this guy a chance. And then it kind of becomes self-fulfilling because if you do it once and you make a good thing of it, then the next person feels like they're taking less of a chance of you, as does the next person, as does the next person, as does the next person. And that's great, and that's fine. Until you get to a certain level. Once you get to a level where it's really about significant power and influence, the terms of engagement change a little bit, and you find yourself sort of stuck, which is why people leave the industry. You know, at various you know, there are always these various levels where people feel stuck, and they need someone to help them progress.
1: Where is the problem in terms of career progression?
0: The fundamental issue is that it's really unregulated. There isn't like a really clear, structured trajectory for anyone, really. The only areas that are structured are the more functional, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, functional roles. Editing, edit assistant, editor, runner, junior production coordinator, production coordinator, production manager, production exec, uh, head of operations, maybe MD, COO. Outside of that, the rest is up for grabs. How you get from being a researcher to an AP, an AP to a producer, a producer to a director, a PD to a series producer, a series producer to an exec, a producer to a head of development, a head of development to a commissioner, a series producer to a commissioner, a director to a commissioner, an exec to a commissioner. The fact that I've just said there's about five different ways you can become a commissioner just shows you that there isn't any linear way you can do it. And so because it's unregulated, it's incredibly dependent on who you know and how it is that they know you. They make the easiest possible decision. And the easiest possible decision is just tell me, just ring someone that I know and just tell me who's good. Like, it's work to try and find people that are different from you that could be good. Which means, in order to succeed in this industry, you need a very, very good, constantly nurtured network of the right type of people.
1: I ask a question that unfortunately crosses the mind of people of colour. Where does he think he would be today if he were white?
0: if I was white, I would be significantly more successful and or better paid. So what makes me say that? Because people have actually said that to me. A couple of years ago, I remember uh, meeting Jay Hunt. She just fired a bunch of questions at me, just about me and about my career. Without skipping a beat and realizing that I wouldn't be offended that she was stating facts, she said, um, you're underpaid, aren't you? For what you've done in your career, you're underpaid. But given this stuff that you've done in your career, you've probably future-proofed yourself So hopefully at some point you'll make the money that you deserve. She's never met me before. She's got no reason to say that, other than she just looks at the facts of my CV and my life, and that's the conclusion that she comes to. She owes me nothing by saying that. She gains nothing by saying that. So where would I be if I was white? Well, according to white people, (laughs) I'd be further along. So that's why I'm saying I would be further along.
1: So having been on the receiving end of covert and overt racism for pretty much most of his life, what feelings does the Black Lives Matter movement evoke in Redwood?
0: Encouraged and empowered to be part of a moment in time that offers a genuine prospect of some change. Not complete change, but a genuine prospect of change. You know, I've got a teenage daughter. For me, I think it's a great time for her to be alive. To be able to see that things can change and the things that her generation have absolutely no tolerance for that other generations are stepping in line and going, you know what? Actually, yeah, you're right. We've just put up with it for too long. We got too comfortable. We were too scared. And I think, you know, it is a perfect storm, you know, the like, like a pandemic that reveals like mass inequities across societies during which you therefore also see the racial inequalities that have always been there but they're just stripped bare and then you put on top of that an incident that makes you therefore look at systemic racism everywhere like it just becomes undeniable and so your reluctance to have a conversation about it is a statement your silence is a statement what you say is a statement those statements need to be substantive and not performative
1: after the murder of george floyd people were turning to social media in their droves. But I wanted Redwood to describe how people reacted in person. When you don't have a graphic or hashtag to hide behind, in the office, what were the conversations with non-Black co-workers like?
0: There have been some conversations, not many, but there have been a couple. I think the reason why there there haven't been many is because it was uncomfortable for me and it was uncomfortable for them. It's quite a difficult thing to reconcile. You know, if you've got one person that really wants to try and help, but wants you to tell them how it is that they can help, and you've got another person that doesn't feel like it's their responsibility to tell you how to do something that should feel really obvious, then that's going to cause friction. Part of it is getting past that friction and feeling comfortable with that friction because like in order for things to change, things need to be said that maybe weren't said before, which means that certain people need to be a bit braver about what it is they say, what it is it they articulate and other people need to hear stuff and not, and put the, put how it makes them feel to one side. Because in this situation, how they feel is less important than how the person who's telling them feels. So I think that made it more awkward dynamic.
1: Amongst a Black, Asian and ethnic minority community, it's a different story. But I would
0: say between myself and other Black and Asian people in the industry, there's been a lot of conversation. A lot. In a positive way, in a galvanising way, which is also encouraging.
1: In the past, what has stifled the conversation about systemic racism in the workplace? Why does it take the death of yet another Black person to shake these issues out?
0: To succeed in the system, my reading of it is that you don't rock the boat, that you don't do things to make people feel uncomfortable. That's number one. Number two is that you're already aware that you stand out. It's just other people like acknowledging that all the time. Trying to play this really silly game of trying to fit in when you don't look like anybody else in the room. <laughs> right. Um, and so. Like the silliness of that as an endeavor only really strikes me now like when I'm on on Zoom. Because when I'm on Zoom, I can literally see the room reflected back at me. So I know that all these ways that I was trying to try and fit in, if they didn't want to accept me, they could see that I wasn't like them. Like it was like, it was pretty obvious, right? So if you're used to being singled out, if you're used to being adversely treated, and then you're able to minimize that horrible feeling by keeping your head down, getting the work done, being charming, being diplomatic, then the last thing that you want to have to start doing, raising topics that feel confrontational, raising topics that feel uncomfortable, raising topics that completely single you out even more than you are singled out as a result of your experience. Having to explain and help uh, people understand something that as far as you can work out should be obvious.
1: Sometimes the outpouring of emotion we share as a black community can be mistaken for anger.
0: So, as I said before, diligence, diplomacy, and deference were my way of dealing with things, right? And so, until very, very recently, that's how I would deal with this subject matter because otherwise that would make people feel uncomfortable. The reason why it feels like it's anger is because you are asking people to discuss trauma. It's emotional trauma. It's something that affects how you feel about yourself emotionally and psychologically and is unpleasant and is unfair. If something was unfair, unpleasant and emotionally damaging to you and you had no control over it your entire life, how happy would you feel about it? Question. How happy would you feel about it? I don't know anyone that would say, "Yeah, I'd be, I'd I'd be, I'd be able to be pretty level-headed about that at all times." So when you have this moment in time, particularly where people are saying, "We really want to know what you feel," okay, then the first thing that you might get is an outpouring of emotion, and that outpouring of emotion may not be diplomatic. It may not be deferential. It might just be direct. After that. There might be a period of reflection or there might be some piercing analysis. You might get that too. And then you might get a sense of compromise, conciliation, reciprocation. Great, but that needs to be felt on the other side too. Like I need to know that you feel. So rather than ask me why I'm angry, what I wanna know is, do you understand why I'm angry? Do you feel the pain that we go through on any level? as a human being when I explain how emotionally traumatic it is for me as a person. If you're saying that you can understand how emotionally debilitating and destructive it can feel to be singled out just for the color of your skin, if you can understand that emotionally, then you should understand the other emotions that come with not being able to even confront this issue uh, for years, decades, and in some cases, centuries in terms of the particular issues to do with race. So that's what I would say. And as uncomfortable as it is for people to, as uncomfortable as it is for white people to hear this kind of stuff, trust me, it is much more comfortable than having to walk down the street and be called a nigger, trust me, it just is.
1: In this year's Edinburgh Film Festival, David Olashoga recently explained, structural racism results in a prejudice where BAME people are told that their own lived experiences are merely interpretations or opinions. A fairer society is worth fighting for, and Redwood wants to help non-black people understand what it means.
0: And I want you to know that any anger or resentment is coming from a place where the world is unfair and the system is set up to encourage inequity. And if you don't stand up and against inequity, then by default, you support inequity. If you do not want to be accused of not supporting inequity, then do something about it. Simple. It should not be this difficult for talented black people to progress. It shouldn't. Full stop. If you are talented and you are good at your job and you're not a horrible person, then it should be much easier than it currently is to succeed in this industry, to maintain a career in this industry, and to sustain a degree of success.
1: Why is he amped that this particular moment in history can help turn the tide?
0: That's the other thing that gives me confidence, which is that even when people are saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, people are now like, well, we have heard this before many times. So we actually need to see what it is that you're going to do as opposed to what it is that you're going to say. For a variety of reasons, I think the industry now feels like it's facing some sort of existential threat rather than the individuals within the system. I think that's the thing that that feels like it's, it's shifted. Whereas before as an individual you thought if I speak up, that's my career done.
1: And the media industry from a business standpoint, the penny has also well and truly dropped
0: now it feels like people in the upper echelons of the industry are like, if we don't do something about this, we're going to lose the people that could tell the stories that other people want to hear. And we're going to lose the stories to other platforms. So whether you're a producer or whether you're a platform, it's incumbent upon you to get on board because there's a whole group of people that just want to make the entire world their customer. So that, you know, in many ways, it's a hard-nosed business decision. How many different people can I get to buy into my product? How many different stories do I need to tell? Oh, and those stories work and they rate and they make money. Well, then let me do some more of that. And then those audiences are naturally going to lean that way.
1: Redwood definitely had a disdain towards the media industry's response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So did I. And many others. As said perfectly by Roxanne Gay... This is why all those corporate statements about diversity and nonsense, a little Instagram post doesn't make up for the racial disparities in everything else. Redwood shares his view.
0: My issue was that like systemic racism didn't just pop up in June. Everyone knew, no one really cared. But there's like a harsh spotlight being showed in everyone. So everyone feels like they need to be doing more and to be seen to be doing more. And that's fine. You know, if that creates progress, that's great. What's irritating about it is that the speed at which you can come up with ideas, the speed at which you can find money, the speed at which you can call people and suddenly offer them positions, suggests that, therefore, the answers were there all the time. But you just didn't care enough. And that kind of reinforces what a lot of people felt. And you've kind of just proved it by your actions. You know, I know someone who got offered multiple jobs on the same day, post-George Floyd, all related to that subject matter. And they're like, but I've been here the whole time. Like, and you knew me, and you must know me, because you got my number and you're calling me now. So like, I didn't just drop from Mars in June. I've been here.
1: At the end of the day, don't be afraid of your truth anymore. And don't omit pieces of yourself to make others more comfortable.
0: If you look at it from a different perspective, it's an opportunity. Now that they see us and they appreciate what it is that we might be able to do, maybe these opportunities will manifest themselves into something more meaningful. And that's my hope, I guess.
1: Even though it's obvious to some of us, I wanted Redwood to explain from his perspective why diversity in the media industry is critical.
0: Because the media industry is all about relationships and it's all about making programs that feel relatable to an audience. But in order to be able to do that, you need to be able to relate to that audience. Your definition of the audience is largely defined by your own experiences and no one person can be the audience. And at the moment, we've got too many people from a particular background deciding what the audience wants. Like it's one homogenous thing, like the homogenous block of people you have in the upper echelons of the industry, and it's not. It's multifaceted. It's different. It's contradictory. It is diverse in every sense of the word. So if you don't have different voices in the room, then the different parts of the audience have got much less chance to be heard. I mean, part of my problem with answering questions like this is it just feels so obvious. Like, if you want to appeal to as many people as possible, then try and have as many different perspectives in the room. Give yourself a competitive advantage. You're helping
1: yourself. But the response to more diversity from broadcasters and production companies is still not good enough and frustrating.
0: What about black people in commissioning? And then people go, yeah, well, our bane figures are this. I didn't ask you about your BAME figures. I asked you about black people that are in the room when you're having a conversation about a programme idea. Can you tell me that, please? A black male commissioner is like a dodo in the UK.
1: At the beginning of the interview, Redwood shared his reasons for why he is now ready to talk about his experiences. But diversity media has been talked about for way too long. So what is the difference this time round? The
0: difference at the moment as well is that the question that is being asked is a different question. Before, people would be asked about, you know, what do you think we could be doing to deal with diversity in the industry? Well, you could do schemes, you could do quotas, and you could have quite, you know, intellectual and hypothetical arguments about that, right? The question that's now being asked as far as I can see is, what do we do about systemic racism in the media industry? Oh, okay, well, that requires a critical analysis of the system itself, of which, you know, we're all part of. So it's a collective conversation. If I just talk facts about the system, if you don't like the facts, I didn't make the facts up. Like, I'm just telling you what the facts are. I'm just telling you what the numbers are within the industry. So if you don't like how that sounds, then we need to have a different conversation about what we do to change that narrative. Like, it's just a different, like, it's a different focus. Like, it's macro. It's like, it's every broadcaster. Like, it's almost every production company.
1: Redwood knows he has not been used to his fullest potential. He knows he can map his trajectory against other people in the industry, where they've gone and where he's at. So why hasn't he thrown up the peace sign and bounced?
0: As a reason to stay in the industry, I was just thinking about this, because one of the things that is great to see is other people progress and prosper. And if you stay, then you can share some of the secrets. You can share some of the techniques. You can share some of the networks so that they can make different mistakes and get different opportunities.
1: The interview is done, yet I feel like we've only just scratched the surface. How does our guest feel?
0: I would say by sharing pretty unadulterated truth with you, like there's a reason for that because if you hold all of this stuff internally, then it just impedes your progress as a person. If I wanna progress and move forward, then I need to just let go of stuff. You know, that story about GQ and how that made me feel, like I've never spoken about that publicly. Like, But now that I have it, it's done, it's out there. I could just move past it and move past those negative feelings and just move towards more positive feelings. Put yourself in a positive mindset to make the most of the opportunities that may present themselves in this moment of awareness.
1: Solidarity is poisonous when it only uses minority voices to increase its visibility, but later on fails to amplify those voices. Sometimes you need to be brave and make this statement. I am no longer available for things that make me feel shit. One thing's for sure, never measure how valuable you are by the way you are treated. People of color are over it, done. Family, allies, when we see racism, keeping quiet is no longer an option, neither is putting up with it. We have to band together, call out and stand strong. This is our moment. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Naked Stories. This show was edited by Michael Kalizinski. Sound designed by Anton Borove. Produced by Anna Zergic, Jessica Lapsiwala and Tom Viskoski. Narratives written by Jessica Lapsiwala and myself, Roses Okipo. See you in the next episode for more non-filtered stories. For now, ciao bella.